Welcome to Off the Bench with Danny Cannell. Danny Cannell. Back to throw. First and 10. And Raja Bell. Bell has done 22 to Raja. It's all the future of football right before your eyes. Just yell it out, man. He can't guard me. What's going on? Welcome to Cannell and Bell. Our boy Tommy Tran filling in for Raja. Raja's got a few days off for load management. You know, we got to, we got to pace <laughs> the him new out term. throughout the year. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, monster show for you. A lot of NCAA tournament recap. Uh, the Lakers are officially out of the playoffs. What does that mean? And there could be some trouble for Big Baller Brand. Ton to get to without the show, uh, throughout the show. But we got to get our guy Matt Norlander in here to help us with the tournament because I really felt like Duke UCF saved a day or saved a weekend that was really there was a lot of blowouts. There weren't too many games, and you knew a lot of eyeballs would be on Zion Williamson and this Duke crew. And the game delivered without not without some controversy. Matt, what were your initial reaction? What was your initial reaction to the Duke UCF game? Uh, thank God we got this game. Cause I, yes, it was a, it was a lackluster first weekend of the tournament. Can't deny that it easily rates as I think a bottom three opening weekend since the tournament expanded in 85, just in terms of drama. I mean, we didn't have a ton there, just so many double digit outcomes. And yeah, it's the chalkiest weekend, uh, opening weekend we've ever had. It ties 2009. Get this 2009 and 2019, both had a one, a two, a three, a four, a one, a two, a three, a four, a one, a two, a three, a five, and a one, a two, a three, and a 12 identical. We may be in the matrix and I think I have found a glitch. So the fact that Duke and UCF were so compelling and yeah, a little bit controversial, although I got to say when Duke wins a one point game, in the NCAA tournament, and by the way, that's the only, uh, the only other one point game when they have as a one seed in their tournament was when they beat Kentucky in 92 in that epic elite eight game. But when Duke wins like that, there's going to be a lot of people kvetching about what didn't happen with the officiating. I got to say though, the whistle to me guys, feel pretty balanced. And if anything, if UCF has an issue, it's the hook and hold that wasn't called down the stretch. I don't think R.J. Barrett had an egregious push. I don't think Zion Williamson's non-call on a charge should have been a charge. I had no problems with that. The brutal thing for UCF fans is Taco Fall goes out, and if he's on the floor, R.J. Barrett doesn't get the offensive rebound. you got to figure a seven foot six dude is getting that board when Zion Williamson misses it, and then the game is probably in hand. But so many factors went into uh, Duke just barely escaping. And by the way, didn't you kind of sense, didn't you guys kind of feel like Duke was going to win this? Like, no matter what happened... It was just going to wind up going Duke's way. There's just, it's, you're UCF, you're a nine seed in that spot, and the tournament needs Zion. So, uh, a fun ending, but I was not surprised that Duke wound up pulling it out. Yeah, man, I was really surprised when it was 74-70 and the Knights can't convert on that two to one fast break and you go the other way. I was just, I was just about to go to Twitter and say, where's Cam Reddish been? And then he hits a big three to get them within one. Take me though before a lot of people obviously watched the game. Some others caught on late when Duke was in trouble. So they only caught the, the end of it, like what did UCF do to, to obviously they had an early lead and Duke went on that 12-2 run to end the half, but then really in the second half, the Knights again controlled tempo, really played their game. What did they do to allow them to be in this game for, for most of it? Well, I, th- I thought that they won. They dared Trey Jones to shoot, and Trey Jones isn't a great shooter. That's why he won't be a lottery pick. If, that guy, if, if Trey Jones had a mid-range jumper, he'd be a top-ten pick because he's a top-five defender in college basketball. So they did that, and Trey Jones did eventually hit a big three, but he wasn't that effective. And then also Aubrey Dawkins, the senior and the son, of course, of Johnny Dawkins, UCF's coach, has the best game of his career. He was incredible. The fact he scored 30-plus. 
was a huge factor in UCF keeping that game uh, not only close, but holding a lead there and kind of holding the country captive. I thought that was fantastic. You see across the board what we had here, and R.J. Barrett has an off night. Williamson kind of was, it was a really, really, maybe above average game, but like he was awesome. It wasn't one of the five best games he's had this season, but you can just see, even when you get those other three guys to not play at a peak level, it's still so hard to knock off Duke. UCF had a really good shot, but uh, but couldn't get it done. And I, I do want to say that the Zion Williamson versus Taco Fall matchup, uh, that lived up to the hype. In fact, just Taco Fall in general, like I feel like his college career is over, but we're going to probably see him help defeat Thanos in Avenger Endgame. Like I, he is, he was, he looked like a completely different kind of player out there. UCF needed him. It was. Uh, it was a fantastic watch. That one and the Tennessee holding on against Iowa were the two games on Sunday that really made that you know second half of the second round worthwhile because uh, that one was not short on dramatics either. Matt Lor- uh, Matt Norlander joining us here on Canelo Bell. Make sure you follow him at Matt Norlander on Twitter and download and subscribe his podcast, Eye on College Basketball Podcast. And, of course, you can see him all the time right here on CBS Sports HQ. So my Florida State Seminoles put an end to the John Morant show. He was spectacular in the first half, and then Florida State kind of figured him out and ended up running away with that one. What did John Morant prove through this tournament? Because, I mean, it's, it's, do you think there's any chance maybe that he would have hopped over R.J. Barrett uh, to get to that number two spot? Or, you know, where do you see him falling now in the NBA draft? Yeah, no, I think that there's a there's a solid shot that he is going to go before R.J. Barrett. Uh, my prediction as of now is by the time we get to draft night and we've gone through all the post-NCAA tournament, you know, two months worth of workouts and interviews and combines and all that stuff, although I don't expect John Morant to do too much at the combine. It's going to settle that R.J. Barrett goes two and Morant goes three. I would take Morant ahead of Barrett, though, um, and I still think there's a good shot at that. I was there in Hartford, saw him up close. He was just tremendous. Florida State won over Murray State because it had size, depth, length, athleticism, and Morant still had an awesome game. I mean, you can see his numbers there. By the way, he now officially is the only player since assists were an official statistic as of 83-84 to finish the season averaging 20 points and 10 assists. That's absurd. Um, so I thought he did a great job. He played well against Florida State, only uh, you know, re-emphasized, if you will, that he is a bona fide top three pick and a guy with just great, great character. Um, real quick here, so I, I took a video of Morant that, frankly, uh, went viral. My mentions are still a dumpster fire over this, but that's another topic altogether. But um, before Morant went out into the arena during the Villanova-Purdue game to give his shoes to a young boy, you know, there was about ten and a half minutes left in the in the first half. He waited about four minutes for a for a media TV timeout. Like he could have just been like, ah, uh, you know what, I'm just gonna go back to the bus. But he just stood there and waited. I was with him and waited and waited and waited. And then when he did that, he's really got this effect. It's not guys, it's not quite Zion Williamson, but that building was so amped up for him at every opportunity. When he walked back out, it was kind of like one guy, ja, 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 ja. And so there, he, he has this huge magnetism about him. And then as he left, that section of the uh, of the arena at the XL Center all stood up, gave him a, a standing ovation. It was a really cool moment. He is, uh, from a mental perspective, no doubt about it, he is ready to be a pro. He will uh, pass his interviews with flying colors. All right, we got a couple of minutes left here with Matt Norlander before we have to let him go. I just want to piggyback on, on Ja. Obviously, we saw his offensive skills on display with the triple-double lighting it up against uh, Florida State there, albeit in a losing effort. But I did see some things, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on the other side. Defensively, you know, what are the chances that that part of his game still needs need some improvement? Do scouts or GMs, at least from what you talked about, maybe find that a bit of a liability, Matt? 
How's Trey Young doing this year? <laughs> Pretty Trae good. Young had bigger def- Trae Young had way more defensive questions about his game heading into last year's NBA draft than John Morant does. John Morant is not an elite defender. I don't think he's a bad defender. I think he's going to be just fine. But guess what? Trey Young, the thing that held him back, allegedly, it was not going to make him a top five pick were his concerns on defense. Look what he's doing. He's he's a close second place to Luka Doncic for uh, rookie of the year in the NBA. John Morant is a more well-rounded NBA prospect heading in. Uh, like Trey, he's a really creative and willing and wanting passer. I think that's not uh, not any small thing. He's not as good of a shooter as Trey Young, but he's a better rebounder. Uh, he's got more speed. He's got more athleticism. So, yeah, the defensive questions are there, but his overall game, it will make up for that. And I think that we will look up in five or six years, and we will see that John Morant, while not being an elite NBA defender, he is going to be uh, more than capable. And so often when these questions about the defense comes up, I always want to say, yeah, but what is everyone else doing to stop him? So I'm, I don't have too many questions about that. Um, I think regardless, he's a lot to go top three. All right. Good stuff, Matt. Appreciate it, man. Have a great day. Thanks, fellas. Appreciate it. All right. Just real quickly piggybacking on that job, Morant, yep. uh, you know, defensive thing, James Harden. I mean, has anybody watched the YouTube? Right. They have of him just whiffing on people and Oleg letting guys go by. I think he'll figure that out. I think it's one thing, too. When, you know, at the youth levels, at the collegiate levels, it's not harped on as much. And if you're such a good offensive scorer, I think coaches are willing to overlook that. In the NBA, he'll get coached up harder. He'll have better teammates where, you know, they'll, they'll ride him a little bit and he'll develop that. Like, I don't think he's ever going to be a, you know, a NBA, uh, defensive player of the year or anything. Right. But I think he'll be adequate, which is all you really need. Right. And I wasn't trying to be, of like, course, no, I was, but I saw, I was, yeah. I saw the naysayer saying that too. Like, well, that hey, was, what about his defense? Well, yeah. And I think people always just want to see that when John Morant's lighting it up in the tournament and, and it's funny because then like we had just talked about Trey Jones elite defender but can't shoot who would you rather have you want the guy on the offensive end that can really light it up maybe has uh, an average to slightly below average although we said Norlander said he's going to be just fine I would rather have the John Morant than the than the Trey Jones portion of it a guy that can defend maybe hit a shot have a bad shot I would much rather have the other side of it of course no doubt about it the Duke UCF game I did think we started off the interview with that because I thought it was kind of a lackluster weekend you saw a lot of blowouts uh, you know, it, it was, I was watching the Iowa Tennessee game too and was like, oh man, here we go. Then I actually fell asleep at halftime, woke up with about five minutes left and I had actually taken Iowa, I think it was plus eight. Mm-hmm. And I, I was thinking it was done, woke up and then I was like, hey, we, we got a game here. And it was, that was a great game. Obviously went to overtime. Um, but I thought the UCF Duke game, I was actually watching it with my kids. My kids don't watch a ton of sports with me, but I was you know, taking up the TV all weekend and they were kind of, they had to go like use the other room and they were kind of irritated by it. But I started showing them the two people, the two stars in that game, which were Zion Williamson and Taco Fall. And first of all, they love Taco. Like, they love looking at him. And I showed them some pictures with uh, Tracy Wolfson mm-hmm. where he's so massive, like, standing next to her. And they actually kind of watched it, too. Like, it was a fantastic finish. And I thought it sort of saved the weekend how compelling it was. And I do think there was some controversy. Obviously, Duke has a ton of haters. Uh, and they did get away with some calls. But any day of the week, especially in those late-game situations, I'd rather have the officials let them play right. than to call a ticky-tack foul towards the end. There was a hook and hold. There were some issues. But I don't think they were egregious enough where you're like, oh, they're in the can for Duke. Yeah, and there's always going to be the camp that said, oh, Duke gets all the calls. and they, But it's like, no, like it, that, that doesn't always happen. But there's that perception that Duke always gets uh, the benefit of the doubt and, and how close that shot was from Dawkins going in. I mean, Grayson Allen uh, almost had his shot go in so, you know, Krzyzewski's talked about I've been unlucky before uh, and won, and I've been lucky and lost right there. One of the funny things is, like, 
my buddy on Twitter said, I love basketball. And then I quoted and said, March Madness saves the season every single year. A game like this saves it because yep. there were some duds. And if you're watching, look, college diehard fans will, will watch the game. And there are a lot of teams, like if you don't have the John Moran or if it was Oregon last night with Peyton Pritchard, like you don't have a guy that can create his own shot, the game can be tough to watch. And then you have the, the, the basically every single favorite going into the round of 32-1, with the exception, if you want to say Auburn um, and, and Oregon were not you know, so-called teams that came into the tournament, but they were both preseason top 25 teams. It just took them a while to figure it out. No bowl bowl for Oregon. Auburn goes on that run. So to your point, lots of eh, basketball, but the one last night in prime time definitely saved it. Saved TV ratings, saved it because Zion and Duke advance. Like, and that's the thing I think Zion might be one of his most impressive feats is that he's made Duke likable. Now all that like for Zion went out the window when you had the Duke <laughs> haters coming in saying, how could they get that call? Right. But I do think it was massive that he advances and that Duke advances. I want to say something about Zion because we have some Zion haters apparently in our control room mm. with uh Coco and uh Coca and Mikey and Debo, all these guys in the t- control room. They think he's overrated. And I'll say this. I think in our society today, we have so many athletes that are all about hype mm-hmm. and they don't deliver anywhere near to the hype. I think Zion delivers on the hype every single time since he's been back and even throughout the season. But since he's been back, he's delivered every single game, either with big moments, whether it's a, you know, breakaway dunk or it's a big block or in last night, you know, coming up with big rebounds, putting them back. I just think he delivers every single time he takes the court. And that's a massive compliment to a hyped society where so much it's fluff and, you know, air and all this, you know, flair and it's never delivered. I think he delivers. What if I were to say he's properly rated? Would that be a compliment or would that be a ding on him? What would you say if I said Zion is, is properly rated? Like I feel I think like you're probably right because he's rated really high. Exactly. And that's you know, the thing. Like, and that's, and that's tough for a guy that again came in as a rock star from his high school YouTube days. It's, it's tough to sort of, meet those expectations and yet all he did was you know help carry the team and here's another thing and I know people you know and Raja had the conversation about who's going to be a better pro some people say well Zion's got the hype he's more explosive but RJ Barrett is the better pro and the thing is is like we saw what the team was like without Zion three and three they just had a, a bit of a struggle with their identity but when he is in the game he makes up for a lot of their deficiencies and it was sort of exposed in that UCF game. Definitely when they play the, the likes of Carolina, they get out-rebounded a lot. And on the defensive end, and you give them second-chance points, and what we talked about already with Duke, they're not a very good three-point shooting team, which means Zion, for the most part, when he gets his 35, has to beat you with a bunch of twos. So, you know, I just think he's properly rated. I think it's... it's it, and which that's, is a and, Which is a compliment because he's he's so... Um, the expectations are so high for him that I think he's met those expectations. I think so, too. There's a massive, massive bet going around the office, and the number has been set at 14 points of what he averages his rookie year in the NBA. Okay. I say it's over and it's easy, but all these all these haters in there are taking the under. I think I'm going to be raking in the cash when it comes all, when after his rookie year is all said. That one might be tough because I think it depends which – you're a bad team. Hayden. I don't know about Hayden. You get it on that under. Go ahead. You I, get it I, I lean, but no. But basically, it's because like it depends where he goes. Because if, right. if he if he can basically have the opportunities to to put up shots and to have an offense revolve around him, then I think 14 is feasible. If he's just sort of a complimentary piece initially until he gets a jump shot or he can show that he gets some range, then I think that 14 gets a little bit. Uh, tougher to achieve because then like if you're not going to be able to be the focal point of an offense then you're just relying on putbacks sort of secondary plays secondary chances so I don't know if he can hit that 14 
or if he's on a team that has like a bunch of shooters, is he going to get the ball? Is there enough, you know, possessions for him to get there? So I wouldn't say be hating. Like I actually struggle with this. I, I when you asked me this, I wasn't like, oh, it's definitely under. I all just right. was like, all right, if you had to put gun to my head, probably under. All right, good. We'll have to, we'll have to take some bets on those. Anybody who wants to come and bring it. I mean, by the way, LeBron, I just looked it up. His stats, 20.9 per game. I think LeBron, I think Zion is going to have that type of impact on the NBA. I really do. I'm all in. Maybe I'm, I'm, I'm probably out definitely on the overhype side, but I'm a believer in Zion. Just go to break because I, I can't right. take this anymore. Uh, let's take, <laughs> look at Coca just chiming in. He just can't stand any more of the Zion hype. All right, welcome back. Canel and Bell hanging out here with Tommy Tran, filling in for Raja the uh, next couple of days. I think tomorrow you're out. Wednesday you're back, right? Yep. Um, I have a new look. I don't know if you've noticed or not. Yeah. So I was well. growing out the beard. Mm-hmm. It was all beard. And then I was in Las Vegas. And the first day, and I absolutely did something that you don't want to do when you're in Vegas. Because I, like, I, put, I put action on every single game. And was like, you know, cause there's some that are better odds than others. Like sure. you look for an edge and I was just like, well, I'm here in Vegas. Let's go. Was up at the sports book. Uh, had an awful first day. I'm talking like one and you take a lot six. of the, you must have took a lot brutal. of favorites in, right? Cause the dogs. Yeah. Yeah. They were huge in that first yep. one. And it just, mm-hmm. it was an awful day. So after the day, got to mix it up. I had the full beard. I was like, I gotta, I gotta do something. So I shaved up the beard and I have the good luck goatee. Wow. So the good luck goatee has been just money for me. Florida State goes 2-0 and over the weekend. They advance. Turned around the gambling. Had a monster weekend both at the sports book and at the tables. Had a great weekend. So now I'm in. Like I can't. So I'll probably. I'll see if the gambling obviously will come back to reality at some yes. point. But if Florida State keeps rolling, if they get past through Gonzaga, I'm, I'm keeping it until Florida keep State it? gets bounced from the tournament. Yeah, you have to. Is this something you ever did when you were a player? Like, like oh, yeah. all, I mean, like, superstitious are, stuff? Oh, I mean, sure. I know baseball I mean, players really are. Football, you? Yeah, man. absolutely. Yeah. Never with the facial hair as much because I never could grow a really good beard. Um, so I, but like, same undershirt, same socks. Like, I would get dressed the same way. I would eat the same food. Yeah. And I don't know if it's as much superstition or luck as it is routine. Because they tell you, you know, like, routine is a good thing. It kind of gets you in the right mindset. Um, so I would do that. So, yeah. the the uh, And my wife hates it. Like, hates it. She's like, you look so ugly with that thing. Yeah. And I'm like, well, thanks, babe. But as long as she knows I'm winning, then she's all good. She's okay. Like, then you know you're in a good yeah. mood. Then and you're going to be all right. with me no matter what. So we're, we're good just. Good luck goatee right yeah, now. Good luck goatee. Hey. We're going to keep rolling with it. Um, Tom Izzo took a lot of heat last week um, because of his coaching style. There was a point in their first game when uh, Aaron Henry, one of their freshmen, was coming over to the bench. And, of course, it catches it on TV. And he gets after him. It was a. Good old-fashioned tongue lashing in my book. He got after him pretty healthily. There was a moment when he clenched his fist, and he looked like he was going to get in his face even more, and it was going to be like almost nose-to-nose. A couple of his teammates separated him, like kind of held back coach, kind of held back uh, Henry, and kind of separated him a little bit. Mm-hmm. And as happens, the Twitter mob comes out and says, oh, my goodness, this is unacceptable. This is This is abuse. This is verbal abuse. This is emotional abuse. Your thoughts on Tom Izzo's coaching style before I get to mine. I love Tom Izzo. I love his coaching style. Look, I come from a family where my dad, especially sort of like a a military background stuff, very like hard nosed. And like, you know, I got yelled at and actually, you know, I got spanked all the time. Like I, you know, when I was a kid, did something wrong. I always made sure that at first when I, cause I didn't see it live, but when I started to see it on Twitter and I found the video at first, I thought there was a physical altercation because everybody, the way they tweeted it made it seem like it was something physical. Then I watched it again and he's, 
getting in his face, as you mentioned, really close to, but not. I was completely fine with it, and I was okay with it, and I didn't think there was anything wrong. And it's a lot like, and you would know this more than I do, just because of the the Twitter mentions and the reactions you have, like and way things can be construed. It's like it's a lot like when Zion went down. Remember, everyone's like, "Shut it down. He yes. should get paid. He should play." And it's like, why don't we ask? The player, how they felt. And now we've learned from Zion that he wants to play with his team. And much like the player that, that Tom Izzo went after too, he said, we're fine. Like, it's okay. Like, I went to Michigan State and this probably happens at practice and I'm okay too. But I feel like much like anything in social media, whether it's, you know, sports related, political related, entertainment, that people see something and they use it as a springboard to push their agenda. And I just was like, look, pump the brakes, yo. I, Actually, sometimes when I look at Twitter, I lose faith in our society. I'm like, this is a mess. Like, what are we doing? This was one of those ones where I was actually pretty optimistic with the reaction after the initial reaction, if that makes sense. Because I feel like there was initial wa- an initial wave of people who were like, oh, this is unacceptable behavior. Um, you know, Tom Izzo needs to be reprimanded. But then there were more and more people who said, hold on a second. This is a coach who is, you know, top five coach in college basketball, who has earned the respect and love of his players. Um, and I thought there were way more people coming to his defense than I thought, which I thought was a great thing. I think mm-hmm. way too many people came came out initially, and I love the fact that people came to Tom Izzo's defense. I think Tom Izzo, and I think you made a great point, because it's one thing if the players had said, man, that was scary, or, you know, I, I felt threatened or anything, but you had both uh, present and past players, as you mentioned, Draymond Green um, came out and defended his coach heavily. They've, there's a relationship there that is built over time and a trust and a bond um, where you have that that kind of ability to go back and forth, and there's no feelings hurt. Everybody knows it's what it is. It is what it is. It's hard coaching. Um, and then the best part about it, and I guarantee you, this happens later that we don't see. Is I guarantee you at one point, Tom Izzo pulled up Henry after the, you know, after when it's all said and done, said, Hey man, I'm coaching you hard because I love you and because I want the best from you and I'm going to drive you. And that Aaron Henry probably was like, Yep, you're right, coach. Don't ever change. And I think that's the message that was kind of resoundingly after it was all said and done, after about 48 hours, most people were like, we're totally fine with this. And I love the fact that we could all come to that agreement as opposed to, Oh, this is emotional abuse because we have gotten so soft. As a society, and I don't know if you saw Tom Izzo's press conference. I think it was Saturday or Sunday. He was being yeah, totally facetious. Yeah, yeah. he's like, "Well, they they said, how did you how did you change the game, and how'd you come away?" And he's like, "Well, we got together at halftime, and we all hugged and said how great you are, you know." And it's it's that's not real life. It's not real life at all because you're going to get disappointed in life, and there's going to be times when you have to learn tough lessons. And I think it's interesting you mentioned your dad. My dad was the same way. Not not my dad wasn't super emotional he was incredibly supportive in fact like when i would throw it three interceptions my dad would be like i can't believe your receivers dropped so many balls i'm yeah. like at the end i was like dad like come on i had an awful game and he had to admit it yeah but the times where my dad got off to me the most and where he did you know give me a good whooping and it wasn't ever physical abuse but there was some there was physical discipline i deserved it and i look back now and i'm like you know what i needed that and i can't like i wonder what kind of punk i would have been if I hadn't have gotten straightened out a lot of times. And I think that's where there's just this misunderstanding and this, this, this movement towards, oh, you know, everything has to be good and, and cuddly and everything's all good. And that's, 
I just think we lose sight of that sometimes. And at sometimes there is an appropriate time to discipline and use it. Well, you know. how come we don't see this? And like, how come it's it's ex- ex- acceptable in college sports, but you don't see this in the pros? Like, I'm not saying Tom Izzo was in the wrong. I'm just saying that like you don't see this in professional sports. You don't see this in like combat sports, but in college sports, we say like it's okay for a coach to talk to a player like that. I think you do see it in pro sports. I don't think it's blown up out of proportion as much. And I think that's very, there was a very strong undercurrent of the people that want to see college players play, paid, that think college players are exploited, that, you know, and there's, I cannot stand it, but there's oftentimes when it's slave labor is the term that's used. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of those people that want to make that statement use this as that opportunity to say, see, there's a coach making millions, there's a player making nothing, and this is the way he's treated. Because you're telling me Bill Belichick doesn't get into guys on the sideline the way he did or any – like, I mean, that's only the head coaches. I mean, really, the head coach usually is the guy in the NFL who keeps his composure, who doesn't go chew, and chew out of guys. But you talk to offensive line, defensive line coaches, they're getting after the guys like that routinely in practice, in games, in any situation. It's just kind of the way it's done. Now, that being said, there are different coaching styles. Like Tony Dungy, soft-spoken, you know, it's – it also is funny how we we kind of pick and choose what we want to do because Tony Dungy got criticized until he won the Super Bowl right. for being too timid. Mark Richt got run out from Georgia because he wasn't emotional enough. Um, there's just there's different styles. Some work, some don't. It's to me, it always comes back to the relationship between the players and the coaches. Do the players respect the coach? If they do, then you can coach any style you want. And if they respect you, they'll respond to you. If they don't, and a lot of times it comes back to are you real or not? Because if you're if you're a fraud, right. players will see right through that. I'm always amazed. Look, the pro part of it, though, when, when Hugo's asking is why doesn't happen in the pros as much? A, the players are older, more uh, they're more adults, and then the, they generally have more power, especially like in the NBA. Like the players have way more yeah. power than the coaches do, so there's no way you're gonna have a coach, you know, really confronting, especially if it's a star player. Um, but I think in, in, in a football setting, you know, or even in college sports where you're entrusting these 17, 18, 19 year old young men to coaches and whether it's a basketball coach or football, I used to always remember and be really amazed when I would ask a coach back when I was at Fresno State covering them for, for a while and just basically asking like a random, like six man on the bench kid from like four years ago, but coaches remember all the kids that they have that come through. And then even in football where there's even more kids, it's like, Hey, do you remember this kid? It's like, Oh yeah, he was like a guard for us, played well. Did, you know, we go to media days and ask about a fringe player, not just star guys, but I think there's that dynamic of, 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 of these players. And in this instance with Aaron Henry going, you know, playing for Tom Izzo, so you know what you're getting. And then look, this is the quote after the game said, um, you know, he didn't have a problem getting yelled at by Tom Izzo, quote, it's nothing new. It's just responding to it, accepting the coaching, not having a pity party for yourself, just being a basketball player and go respond. Clearly he, he did something that was wrong, either schematically, I'm, you know, effort wise, but that's why you have to have a coach or someone that is a father figure to point that out and to make sure you don't do that again. And that's one of the reasons I was most okay with it because he found out that Tom Izzo, the, one of the reasons he said was he wasn't hustling back on defense. It's one thing, cause if you get chewed out for execution, failed execution, then I have a problem with, like, what's the purpose of that? Like, the guy's not trying to miss a shot. And if it was a good shot and he just missed it, I have, you know, what are you doing? If it's, what good are you doing? But sometimes players need a good kick in the butt. And a lot of times it does come down to effort or on the defensive side of the floor. That's why I was completely okay with it. And I will say, I am extremely grateful that Draymond came out, cause I do wonder, 
if there was silence from his players or they didn't, then you would have gotten more heat. Mm-hmm. Because Draymond afterwards, just to you know, to kind of put a cap on this, uh, he came out and supports it. Just an FYI, being in those huddles for years, Cassius and Matt grabbed his so he could shut up and move on. After a while, you're just ready for him to draw up the play, just giving perspective from someone who's been a part of those huddles. Um, you know, it was... Thank goodness he said this. The reason he wouldn't stop is because Aaron Henry kept talking. However, what the world doesn't know is that Iz loves the kid who challenges him back more than anything. So there's some insight for you all. Uh, but good for Draymond for coming out. And I think we'd be a lot better if we had more coaches uh, who did coach like Tom Izzo does. But again, different coaching styles work for a lot of different people. Welcome back, Ken Ellen Bell, hanging out with Tommy Tran. So yesterday, obviously the entire weekend was about the NCAA tournament. And then yesterday afternoon... Rob Gronkowski decides to come out and just, you know, drop a bombshell as far as the NFL goes uh, by announcing his retirement on an Instagram post where he had a lengthy post, uh, you know, explaining his decision, saying it's about time. There's been a lot of speculation about this the last couple off seasons. Last week, last year, it got, you know, very serious. And I think there was a lot of speculation. And Gronk even admitted that at some point last offseason, he did consider it. So. It is a surprise, but I don't think it's a total shock. I think it's a surprise because he's only 29 years old. But if you look at his body, I mean, when he's out there, he looks like a, you know, Robocop when he's out there with all these, you know, braces on him and he's been breaking down his amount, his ability to play, um, actually to play 16 games is deteriorated. So I don't think it's a massive shock. I do think it is a massive blow for the Patriots, not only because he's obviously one of the best tight ends ever, but because the impact he has with Tom Brady obviously had the huge catch in the Super Bowl. But even if he's not getting a hundred plus yards a game, it's just the threat of Gronk right. keeps safeties honest, and it helps all the other receivers on him. So I'm really curious to see what impact this has on the Patriots as a team this coming season. I think it offers a little bit of clarity because, like, I remember right after they won the Super Bowl, Gronk said, "I'm going to take some time," and everybody had already sort of like, you know, put a, a, an. A, number on whether he would play or not in terms of the odds you know and the thing was is like one of the things i remember hearing from someone else was like maybe they put him on a snap count maybe they only play him every second or third game to keep him fresh but this the fact that you're having those conversations how to manage gronk gives you an idea that that's not the gronk that we're used to the dominant guy that was just destroying defenses and a fantasy stud you know we went through this entire fantasy year you know cuz i i do the show with, with our guys Dave Richard Jamie Eisenberg and Heath Cummings and it's like they always just kept Gronk at one or two and it was more the nostalgia factor when clearly Kelsey and Zach Ertz and even Kittle were outperforming Gronk and he'd have flashes in the Miami game Houston to begin the year but he was mostly hurt and he underperformed and he became basically a blocking tight end a very good one by the way when they were going through that run where Sony Michelle was racking up all those yards i just think you know, when he, when he put it, you know, to bed and went to bed saying, you know, if I, can I come back and do the grind? I just don't think, and what we saw right here is him saying, I'm pretty much done. I think it's really tough loss for the Patriots on a couple levels. Obviously from a production standpoint, what they lose, you know, talking about that intimidation factor and defense is having to respect what he brings to the table, but also just from a keeping it loose philosophy. Like the Patriots are very tight. Um, you know, it's a Patriot way. Everybody goes to work and you've heard players leave the organization and say, man, it was miserable. Like, yeah, it wasn't much fun. It's a lot of work. And, you know, it's fun to win Super Bowls. But you've seen guys leave and say, you know, hey, I, I don't miss it one bit. Even though I'm not winning Super Bowls, I don't like it. And I think Gronk really brought some personality into a locker room and might have been the doldrums of training camp and daily practice and routine that brought some some – Brett, like some lightness and some fun to a place that's not Generally very much not. fun. Mm-hmm. I think they're going to miss that a lot. But, you know, from a, from a, on the field standpoint, 
You got two exceptional tight ends in TJ Hawkinson and Noah Fant from Iowa. I would peg those guys as potential, you know, spots that I think they'll have to trade up to get them potentially. Um, but there isn't another Gronk that's out there. I mean, when you look at his size and stature, and we were just talking about Zion Williamson to start off our shoe and the impact he has and kind of his physical abilities, how he stands out. Gronk does stand out as a tight end that's just a physical freak of nature. I mean, he is significantly taller than both those two guys. He's 6'6", they're 6'4". You know, he's got about 20 pounds on him. But his ability to also be a run blocker, I think, is probably one of those underrated aspects of his game because we don't talk about it that much. We, like, we talk about him as a receiver and as, as Brady's favorite target and the mismatches you get when he's on a linebacker or a safety. But he's also a really good pass blocker. Mm-hmm. And, if you know, if you want to max protect, he can help protect Tom Brady. And he's a really good run blocker. I think those are two areas that you just simply can't replace because there's not another guy that's a specimen like that, that he is that exists out there. He's pretty much a top five or six guy in every big statistical category. But if we were just to say, if I were to ask you peak Kronk, right? So what would that be like? Mm, 2012, 13, 14, you know, up to maybe yeah. 15, right? Where would he rank among the best tight ends in the game? The Tony Gonzalez's, the Shannon Sharps. Um, I mean, Jimmy Graham was, was a bit of a pop at his, you know, two or three year burst, but yep. I mean, like at Gronk's peak, where would you have him? It's a really good question. And it's real. So I played with Shannon Sharp and Shannon Sharp was a better route runner. Like he was faster. He was probably more athletic. Um, but I don't, he didn't have the wingspan and you know, and I mean, Shannon probably would really offended if he said this, but I think Gronk had a better catchability like you just throw it in his area and he'd come down with it and Shannon was a yeah, it was an awesome tight end I would probably lean towards Tony Gonzalez as the total package and the best tight end to ever play but man Gronk it's a really it'd be like a 1A and 1B but I think because of the entirety of Gonzalez's career you have to look at the resumes and I know he doesn't have the Super Bowls that Gronk has right but I think he was just kind of a standard that was kind of standalone because he did it for so much longer and had such a much so much a more successful career but Gronk I mean he's an obvious Hall of Famer does it does it matter to you if he's a first ballot Hall of Famer or not? Because that's kind of the question going around. I think he is. I think the championships puts him over. Um, you know, I wouldn't – if he wasn't, I don't think I would like, oh, my God, you right. have to have Gronk the, as a first ballot. I could I could see where someone would not have him as first ballot. And I think, you know, when we look at sort of the Hall of Fames and we put, you know, baseball kind of at the top when they're uppity about what standards this goes in, and then you got football, and I think basketball kind of comes after that. Um, no, I, I would, I would put him in as my first ballot, but if he wouldn't, uh, if he didn't end up going there, I don't think I'd have much. That's one of those, like, it's kind of, it's kind of like the LeBron MJ debate. I don't love having it. I think it's unwinnable and ultimately like, does it matter? No. And I know people really get emotional about it. It's kind of like this one. If he gets in first ballot, I'm like, yeah, he deserves it. If he doesn't, I'm like, well, he'll get in the next yeah, year. It's it. not a really big deal. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. I just want to see, cause it'd be epic if he got the statue there, like the bust. And he like Gronk spiked it and was like, I'm out of here. Like, and then went out in style. He's got to spike something. Yeah. Like, that's his thing. Well, that's the bronze thing. statue, but he's got to spike something. Or what is he going to wear spike. too? Ugh. Yeah. That'll, that'll be something, uh, fascinating to watch out for. Uh, so we'll keep an eye on that. But, uh, you know, good news that the Patriots know now before the draft, they can sort of make plans appropriately to get their, uh, appropriately to get their one, roster. Set. One quick thing before we button this up. And it was interesting that we brought up earlier is just like the, there's basically the two eras of the Patriots with Bill, um, and Tom. And it's sort of obviously the, the, the early 2000s and then this sort of decade when you have their, their three rings there. 
now that Gronk is gone, it's pretty much just Tom Brady and Steven Guskowski. Like, yep. there's nobody left even from the pre He's a kicker, so he doesn't really he, <laughs> he doesn't really, yeah. And so really then it's just Tom, and it'll be interesting where Tom obviously is getting up there in age, and it's just you can't keep plugging in these new pieces. And now they're really going to have to try to get some weapons around him because that threat of Gronk, gone. Do you think he's the next rock like the rock as far as movie stars, Hollywood star, or does he do something? He's done WWE already. He's had some appearances there. I always think it's interesting because people say, Oh, it's an automatic. It's a done deal. Right. And that in reality, it's really hard to just transition as easy as some people do. Sure. Like, I don't know. I don't know if he's got those kind of chops. I think, I think the wrestling, that sphere really suits him well. And I think he could have a lot of success there. And I think he'd make a boatload of money there too. That, that's the interesting thing because whether it's, it's wrestling, it's movies, it's, those are sort of things that we have to find out about Gronk sort of longer format. Like, like, right. Gronk in snippets, Gronk in doses, I think is amazing. So commercials and ad spots, cause they're condensed and one-liners and things like that. Or if he's going to throw another cruise, which I don't think he is anymore. <laughs> Allowed or whatever he wants to. I, well, yeah, I don't. Do it. Right. But it's just, if, if you're giving him more to work with though, I don't, you know, like, like maybe let's have him do SNL first and see if he can handle that first. And then maybe, I don't know about just jumping in and doing movies. Like that would be, you know, I think a little bit more difficult, uh, until we see more body of work from him. Drew Rosenhaus's agent, uh, was, uh, quoted by Adam Schefter on his future. A lot of fun, a lot of rest, good times, relaxation, partying, being himself, being Gronk. Eventually, we could see him doing TV, acting, and a number of things, appearances, endorsements. He's one of the biggest personalities. He won't disappear. I don't. Uh, there's no doubt about that. I think you make some good points on you know longevity. Because like if we, but think he about- fits our society well. Because we're right. in a meme, you know, society where it's just short snippets. Right. He'll definitely be able to continue that. Because if you were to say, you know, maybe he has the potential to be like the next Shaq. When's the last time Shaq's done a movie? Like Shaq did a movie, you know, way early in his career and he did the rap album and everything too. But now, now Shaq is like a pitch man for a bunch of little companies. Like that's where I think Gronk's niche is, is like pitch man for some crazy food item or some clothing company or something where got a shtick, keeps the script fairly light. And then yep. you can kind of promote him that way. I think that's the avenue for Gronk. Here's one aspect we haven't discussed yet is, is he really done? Because he is only 29. Uh, Rob, uh Drew Rosenhaus was on get up and said on his future. If the team was struggling or they needed him at some point next year, and let's just say hypothetically Tom Brady gave him a call and said, Rob, I need you, I wouldn't be shocked if he came back to play a few games. That's what I just told you. Like, what if, like, so the next season. He's coming back. You're on a snap count. Play every fourth game. Just come back in, like, week 12. And he avoids all that boring monotony of the Patriot way and having to go to work. He'd come back for like the last month of the season and be the hero. I think he absolutely. Like what Brett Favre used to do, right? He used to skip all the OTA, skip all the camp stuff. I'm just going to show up right before the season. Totally. Uh, Welcome back. Ken Allen Bell finishing off here with Tommy Tran. So Raja and I have had a lot of discussion about transferring in general. And Raja has a really unique perspective on it because he was a kid who actually did transfer when he was at BU and then transferred to FIU down in Miami. I have come a long way, I feel, in my philosophy on transfers. Because if you would ask me 10 years ago, I'd have said, I hate it. Blanket statement. Can't stand it. It's for losers, guys that can't you know, win a job. They just want to go somewhere else. I have evolved to a point where I do think it's a very nuanced discussion. I think you have to look at every scenario differently, and they're unique. Um, I'm okay with it if your coach leaves. Um, if If you don't win a position battle... I'm getting more okay with it, but I think you should look at each situation uniquely. Like how many years do you have left as the guy ahead of, you know, just there's, it's a nuanced discussion. So I won't, sure. I, no more will I say, Hey, I just can't stand transfers, but 
I do think Lane Kiffin has made a really interesting and accurate point because he was asked about it and he said, quote, it is the sexy thing to do for players in college football nowadays. Uh, he went on to say, I can get in, I can get in this portal so I can get some attention. We're in a generation of just wanting attention no matter what. So now I can go in this portal, get an article written about me and get re-recruited because I don't like exactly how something's going. That to me is exactly the aspect of it that I hate because I think he is a hundred percent accurate in a lot of cases, not all of them, but in a lot of cases, I think you get kids who they were recruited and you're treated like a rock star throughout the recruiting process. Like you're the greatest thing or come here, you get to play. Right. They're going to be a star. And then you get there and you have to go to work. You have to go to two a days. You have to go to practice. You have to earn your job. You're not just handed a job. And a lot of times kids say, this isn't for me. And they want to get re-recruited and told that all over again. So they enter this transfer portal. So I think there's a lot of truth in what Lane Kiffin is saying. I'm with him there. I just, you know, mostly, and let's be honest, it's like when's the last time you heard a DB go to the portal or like a running back go to the portal or even a star receiver? It's mostly the quarterbacks, A, because... They get the most attention. Well, that's the thing. They get the most attention and there's only one position. And so, you know, that's why it, it's it's highly impacted where we see like the Tate Martell that we're showing a list here, Hurts, Wimbush, Fields, Bryant. Again, when you don't have a situation where you are the guy, you got to look elsewhere. And so... The one thing I think with the transfer portal and then even the sort of the NCAA granting these waivers, the hardship waivers, yep. that's that's the tough thing with like, for instance, the Fields or Martell thing. They can craft sort of this hardship that will allow them to play instead of sitting out a year because that's what we're seeing a lot more. And I, that's where I fear there's a little bit of danger. Yep. But overall, like I am pro transfer just because of the way the college, especially in college football, the way the landscape is. And I think... The NCAA granting some of these waivers and, and what seems like it's at a pretty high clip is that obviously this is just player movement so that you don't have to pay, right? You don't, yeah. still don't really want to pay them yet. And so, yeah, there's a stipend and I get that, but I'm just saying like the player movement slash free agency sort of allows the umbrella of the NCAA to say, Hey, we're letting people go for, for the most part. We're letting them play right away. So, you know, the whole thing about paying, we can kind of <laughs> right. table that off for a little bit. It's one of the, arguments where the NCAA can give and take a little there's a little bit of compromise there and I totally agree with you but look at most of them like Tate Martell is a good example because he was one of the most recent ones we've seen he was obviously at Ohio State then Justin Fields comes in not only did he have somebody coming in that was a a, a better recruit like he was a five-star uh Justin Fields was like in uh Tate Martell was not but also you had a change at head coach Urban Meyer no longer the head coach and I know Ryan Day was there and it was his coordinator but there's a philosophy change there right so I'm okay with that I'm all even he goes to Miami go ahead let him play it was his situation changed dramatically and not just the Justin Fields it's the head coach you might have gone there to play for Urban Meyer to win championships and you think that's different also Ohio State reportedly didn't even want him like they didn't fight for him so I'm like hey if they're okay with it then go ahead um but I do think that what you see with this percentages rising, it is going to encourage more kids to go ahead and take that leap and say, oh, well, if it's that easy, I'm just going to go do it. And sometimes the easy way out isn't the best way out. And I look at my personal circumstance, like there were times at Florida State where I was miserable, I was lonely, I was homesick, and things weren't going as as great as I thought in football. And I called my dad and we had to be like, hey, do you think I should quit? Should I go somewhere else? And you know what came up? And my dad was always like, well, why don't you stick with it? Stick with it for another year, you know, see what happens. And it turned out okay. And I had to fight my way. And I think I'm a better person now, not even a better football player, but a better person because I did fight my way through some adverse situations and was able to kind of work my way through it and figure it out.
That's always the tough thing with the NCAA because there's so many situations that benefit both sides. To your point, it's like, you know, would you be the same person if you didn't go through the hardships? At the same time, you have countless stories where, like, man, why did I have to endure those hardships when I could have left and found a better situation for myself? And so that gets kind of tough. And, you know, I'm with you the coaches thing. I think if there's ever a coaching change or a coach, um, like Manny Diaz, obviously, you know, go to Temple, you recruit kids, right. you go back to Miami. There's like, a double standard. Be able to go. Yeah, yeah, you should definitely be able to go. Um, and then there's the whole, like, within the conference thing, which I also sort of – to a lesser degree, kind of support if you know if you, you draft a kid in, in in the Big Ten or the ACC or the Pac-12, and then they want to go. Well, then there's the don't go to a rival type thing. So that one I'm a little bit okay with too. But that's the tough thing. Like then you have to start judging everything yeah. differently and separately. And so sometimes that gets tough to sort of manage. There is no sympathy for coaches in college football, and they don't they don't deserve a lot. Of, they make a ton of money, but I think it's harder than ever to coach players. Because, you know, we were talking about Tom Izzo earlier in the show. If you coach a kid like that, a lot of times he's going to say, oh, wait a second. This isn't the guy who recruited me. Whoa, what is this? This Who's this guy? And they'll say, I didn't sign up for this. And they'll transfer. So it takes the ability for coaches to coach hard. And sometimes you, a guy does deserve to be benched. And sometimes if you take your time off and it makes you work harder, that can be a good thing. But now, again, if you bench a guy, he's going to say, see you later. Or if he loses a competition at a, at a position, they're going to leave. So I think it's... It's really this tricky situation that's developing. And there are so many unique situations that come up. I, there isn't really a solution to any of it. Right. But I think it is an interesting dynamic that's really changing college football right before our eyes. And let's see what impact it has uh, down the road. Are you? Did you ever order your uh, Triple B shoes, your Big Baller brand shoes? Did you ever order a pair of those? Oh, I think they're still uh, they're, on the they way. Might, they might actually be because I know they had some some issues with actually getting them delivered. Yeah. So when LeVar Ball was out there, you know, pumping up the triple band, uh, triple B brand for, you know, Lonzo, obviously using Lonzo for all he's worth. Mm-hmm. I, you know, people didn't love when I said he was a, he was doing a disservice to his son. They're like, well, he's got his son millions of dollars. In this case, I think he might have actually cost his kid a lot of money and maybe even some of his, uh, his career because the Lakers have uh, reportedly approached Lonzo that they have concerns over his shoes oh because he had three separate ankle injuries during his career. And if you see these shoes, there that would be a massive concern because it's not just easy to change the shoe game, especially if you're trying to do yourself. Right? They are ugly as anything. I'll get out too. But I think he's got to leave. He's got to and say, see you later. There's also with a deal with a dude was stealing a million and a half dollars. Like this has become one massive distraction. I think it's time for Lavar to step up. And step up to his dad and be like, "Hey, enough is enough. I got to start taking care of myself." Lonzo is becoming an adult now. He's not a UCLA kid anymore under the umbrella of the Ball family. Yeah, he at some point he's got to come out and say, "Pops, look, I got to live my life. You want to still do Lamelo and take care of them, but you got to you got to cut me loose." And, and that's up to Lonzo now because I think he's at an age where he's got to go up to Lavar and say, "We're done." Yeah, absolutely. All right. Hey, thanks for filling in, man. Yeah. Appreciate it. All right. Uh, David Sampson going to come in tomorrow and give us some thoughts on Noah Syndergaard, who went off on the Mets. Whose side Sampson going to take? I don't know. You have to stick around. Wait to see, as he likes to say. <laughs>